Welcome into The Harvest, a podcast dedicated to helping you live your faith and take the message and mission of Jesus out of the building and into the everyday places of life. My name is Andrew Stroud, and today I'm joined by Joey Odell. He's a soldier, an author, a pilot, a chaplain in the United States Army, a husband, and a father of 13. He's also a dedicated follower of Jesus who has a passion for making disciples in the harvest. Recently, Joey and I sat down for a conversation that I believe will really encourage you. We trace his own journey of faith and how a strange late-night encounter led him to become a follower of Jesus. He also shares some great stuff on how to set goals and make purposeful decisions that move you toward them, and why it's important to develop breadth and depth in your thinking. If you're interested in connecting more with Joey, find him on Facebook and check out his book, Faith is Not Blind. We've put a link in the show notes for this episode. Well, I'm here today with Joey Odell. He's a chaplain with the United States Army. He's also a pilot, or has been in the past. Are you still Are you still licensed? No, I'm not licensed. That's really expensive to maintain. <laughs> he He knows how to fly people. Uh, he's also an author, and he's someone I've gotten to know from a distance. This is actually our first time getting the chance to sit down and uh, speak to one another face to face. Joey, I've really enjoyed reading your work and following you on social media. I find you to be a clear thinker and a great spokesman for the faith, and I'm pleased to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. It's, uh, it's great to meet you, Andrew. Uh, also, I've enjoyed watching you and your team's work uh, on social media. It's so interesting how we're connected there. We have, we have other people that we know personally that we're connected to, and uh, being able to meet today is a great opportunity. Yeah, I, I know. I was trying to remember how did we even get connected. I'm not sure... I think I it honestly was, don't know. I think it was you you had you were an Instagram recommended follow. Okay. Uh, that Into the Harvest was and I didn't know what it was, so I clicked on it and I saw some stuff you guys had done recently. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll follow them. And uh no disrespect to you, but Abigail's, you know, QT has been something that I probably <laughs> paid the most attention to. That's um, great. But I just uh, really appreciate uh, what you guys are doing for uh, the body of Christ in the world, and uh, it, it's, it's great to be able to meet you face to face. Well, this is outstanding. This is one of the things that we definitely hope for with with the Into the Harvest ministry, that it would actually be something that creates community and brings people together. So this is kind of a, a prime living example of that. Well, why don't you tell us and our listeners a little bit more about who you are, what's going on in your life uh, currently, just to introduce yourself. Uh, so I am uh, currently an Army chaplain. Uh, I'm at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, serving here uh, with the Army and ministering uh, to soldiers. I'm a, I'm a major in the Army. That doesn't really mean much in the chaplain world. Um, it just means that I get to minister to more soldiers than if I was, I was less. Uh, my uh, family at home, I have uh, my wife, Carrie, um, the love of my life. Uh, we've been married for, I think it's 17 years this summer. Um, we have 13 children. Yes, that's right. I said 13. <laughs> you heard right. Um, one of whom is grown uh, and moved out and married uh, to a wonderful woman. And uh, the other 12 are, are still at home. And the ones at home range in age from 15 to uh, a newborn. My wife gave birth on February 2nd to number 13. Um, and everyone's uh, doing great uh, with that. Um, before I was, a, I've been a chaplain for almost 10 years. And before that, uh, uh, in the army, I was a, as you mentioned, I was a pilot. I was an aviation officer, uh, for 10 years. Um, and in between I did some civilian pasture work and, uh, unloaded trucks did what I needed to do to, uh, to pay the bills. And you mentioned I'm an author. I, I wrote a book, uh, Faith is Not Blind. And, uh, it connects with like, I think what your team's passion is about knowing what your faith is. And that, that's, really where I'm coming from as a chaplain, as a clergyman, as an Anglican uh, presbyter or priest, um, helping people to understand uh, the fullness of God and what their faith like can be. Where, where are you now? Where are you going? How can we get you there uh, in the kingdom? Um, so I'm passionate about discipleship. I'm passionate about ministering uh, to people. I'm passionate about my family. And I love, I love soldiers and families. Uh, I love what I do and who I do it with. And uh, I hope I can do it until I can't physically do it anymore. Well, I think that really comes through, uh, even over Facebook or, or through social media, through, through the book that you wrote, that passion, that love for people, really, though, also just your devotion to Jesus and your desire to live for him, to serve him, and to help other people serve him. And even as you were sharing there, 
uh, introduction to yourself, we're going to get a chance to talk about some of those different facets of your life, whether it's your life as uh, a pilot, your your work as a chaplain, uh, being a husband and a father of a large family, but also being very actively involved in the community and, and in sharing your faith. Uh, there's a lot there for us to dig into. But uh, if we do a little bit of a deeper dive into who you are, okay. where you're coming from in terms of your your history, what are some of the things that shaped you as you were growing up, led you to want to be in the military, eventually led you to the path that has brought you to where you are today? Sure. Um, I, I have a tumultuous a family background, and just for time's sake, I won't go into details, but I shuttled back and forth between uh, different family members. Um, had some you know some rough times as a kid, some some poverty times, some abuse times. Um, you know, family members were, were there for me, um, but it was it was challenging. And like a typical boy, like I like to play army. Maybe that's where it came from. Uh, I didn't have any particular family connection to the military at all. Hmm. Um, really, I was in high school and I got that I got that West Point flyer in the mail, and looked at it and was like, well, that looks like it'd be kind of cool. I get to have guns at college, <laughs> yeah. and and you know, and uh, through the providence of God, uh, I ended up being able uh, to go to West Point. Um, my uh, faith growing up, I uh, was baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, because of those family um, challenges, um, I would when I was with my one side of the family, I would go to Roman Catholic Church and education. When I was with my other side of the family, I would go to like some kind of Baptist ish. Uh, church and Sunday school. Uh, so I was uh, baptized again when I was nine um, and certainly self-identified as a Christian uh, growing up. Uh, I get to West Point and so I jump into like the cadet chapel there as a freshman and I'm part of the choir. Um, but by the middle of my second year, I kind of stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, my faith was something that was part of my heritage and not really something I owned, honestly. I, kn I knew the answers to the questions. But did they really impact me from day to day? They, they didn't. Mm. Um, so um, go through my West Point experience there. was enjoying that as much as you can enjoy, enjoy such a thing. And uh, when I was in my senior year, I, was, uh, I had a supernatural conversion experience. Um, I don't like to say God spoke to me because that sounds pretentious. Um, but it certainly felt like that in the moment. And suddenly, dramatically, my life changed immediately and everyone around me saw it and they didn't know what to make of it. I went from being the leader of my group of friends and our typical things that young men do to them calling me Friar Joey, you know, and <laughs> talking to them about the gospel at the, you know, at the, the little club we'd go to and they drink beer and I was not drinking beer then. Um, and it's, oh, go ahead. Tell us a little bit more about, uh, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about this this moment or this experience that that God used to to turn you back to himself or turn you to himself. Yeah, it's uh I don't like tell a story often because I don't want people to think that that that's normative that like you should expect some like huge sure. change like this. Um, but I was 21, I was at home on what we call Christmas leave, which normally students would call Christmas break, um, at my mom's apartment and I woke up uh, in the morning on the couch and uh, it was like I heard a voice which wasn't my own in my head, and it said, what are you doing? And I responded like anyone would respond who hears a voice in their head, it's not their own, asking what you're doing. I said audibly with my lips, I don't know. <laughs> and it came back and said, you know what to do when you haven't. And there was no question in my mind at that moment. It was, I got on my face, and it was if I could see the blackness of my own heart contrasted with the beauty of Christ. And I begged for God to save me and to do with me whatever he wanted to do. There was no traumatic event going on in my life at the time. Um, there was no like visible external motivators for this to happen. And it, it was just like that. And so kind of comically, one of the most visible changes was my language. So right. I, I had a foul mouth, um, military, environment, some family background stuff. And uh, I knew that that wasn't ideal for a leader. Mm -hmm. And so I even had like little stickers in my room that said, stop swearing uh, to try to get myself to stop. And, but I couldn't. But at that moment, 
Like I stopped swearing for over a decade after mm. that moment without ever cognitively thinking about, oh, wait, I better not say that. It just happened. Mm. Um, and so that's just one example of how dramatic the change was and instantaneous. Um, everything wasn't perfect after that moment, of course, right. but the trajectory of my life had changed. Before that, it, it honestly was really all about me. Not that I was unusually selfish or, or particularly bad as the world considers bad, but um, I did the things I wanted to do for the people I wanted to do them for. Right. Um, but after that, I changed things from being me word to God word. Of mm. I was seeking what what did He want me to do? How could I fulfill His desires for my life and for others around me? So you say this was in your final year yes, at, the, at the academy, year. and it was I guess partway through. Maybe you had uh, only a few months left. Right, Christ, only Christmas a few break. Left. I'd already been assigned to aviation for after graduation. So then, what did the early journey look like for you in terms of your faith? What were some of the things that helped you? Uh, continue to follow Jesus and, and grow in him? So uh, the, the Baptist Student Union. So when I, after I got converted, I came back to school and I knew I needed to find someone to point me in the right direction. And of all the people I knew, um, before that time, if you would have said, who are the Christians in your company? I would have said, oh, these 80 people out of 120. And I came back, I was like, no, there's actually one guy I know. <laughs> so I went to him, my friend Warren. I said, Warren, what do you do on Sundays? He said, well, I go to the Baptist Student Union. I said, well, that's where I'm going. And so I went to the BSU and jumped right in, full feet. They were, they were doing discipleship stuff on Tuesday nights, I think. They had church on Sunday morning, a couple of retreat things they did. Uh, the leader, uh, the adult leader, uh, Bill Blackwell, who was a reserve Marine chaplain who's passed away, he uh, gave us, when I graduated, a book, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, that book was formative uh, for my understanding of what it meant to be a faithful follower of Christ. Um, and so wherever I went after that, I always sought out the local church, mm. um, whether it was I went to Alabama or, and I would volunteer. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges of the church is that we let people lead who are willing to lead. Yes. We rarely are screening them. I mean, think about it. I'm a, I've got six months of what I would consider like being a Christian under my belt. I show up at a church. I'm willing to help lead and I'm teaching people. Right. I'm teaching youth, like I'm leading like youth choir stuff. I mean, it's kind of insane when you think about it because I was a natural like leadership, you know, instruction I've received and personality and it was easy for for me to do, at least like I, I can do this without knowing what I should know or um, without that real discipleship, you know, I needed. Um, but the, the church, the local church was always there for me. Um, so Alabama, um, I went to New York. Uh, participating in a church there, they they let me preach. You were stationed in New York, right, at Fort Drum. So this was, you, you spent, what what was it? Would it be a year or it's two? Like a yearish in, in Alabama, Alabama right. and then you spent probably several several right. years, For four up years in, at Fort Drum, right, um, with some you know departures, go to deployments and such to so avoid got, winters whenever possible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you got plugged in there with yes. uh, a local body of believers, right? A, a it was local a local church, church um, and uh, the I would help out however they would let me. Um, you know, whether it was doing manual labor um, to help with transitioning a church between seasons or, uh, you know, singing the choir. And at some point, the pastor let me preach. I'd never done that before. And really? I'd never received any formal guidance on what preaching should look like. Uh, I did listen to people on the radio. I like listen to Adrian Rogers, listen to Tony Evans, Alistair Begg. Those are my big three. And well, I'd heard a lot of preaching. I guess I could do this. And uh, so I do my first sermon. And... Uh, Two things happen. One is my roommate, who wasn't going to church, came up to me afterward and said, you need to do this. This is what you need to do. And then another gentleman in the church who'd recently been ordained uh, came up to me and said, you have the gift of spirituality. And I, I didn't really know what that meant, but he certainly was, what he, I don't know what he meant by that, but I viewed it as a confirmation of this is the direction I need to move in. Because at this time, you're, in, you're still in your early 20s. Right. You are not a chaplain. Right. You are uh, an aviation officer yes. in the Army. And so to preach and to serve in this way was just something that you saw as being related to your faith. Right. Not your job. Yes. Maybe not even mm -hmm. your, your special calling. Mm -hmm. um, you were just following Jesus and wanting to serve him Absolutely. It, it was always clear to me that whoever you are, you should be serving faithfully in the body of believers and to those around it. And uh, I have these like leadership gifts, I have these communication, you know, talents. I should use those in the service of the kingdom. 
Um, and that, that was never something that, that I questioned. And so I think it took a while before I saw that not everybody understood it that way. Yeah. Um, that people were content to, to show up and to check a box be, because that's all they kind of knew to do. Um, right. And they weren't being challenged to do otherwise. Now let's set the time frame for folks uh, because this was pre 2001. This was right. pre 9 11. So your time here in New York and your early years in the Army were in the late 90s. Right. And so what were some of the experiences that you had in the pre 9 11 Army or what was it like to be a believer and to be serving the Lord? Or even just what were some of your experiences? in the army during that era. Sure. Well, in some ways there uh, it's not a wasn't a whole lot different in that you know, the army is a it's a secular organization. Um, it's an organization that deals with, you know, that's mission is to kill people and break things. Um, <laughs> and so it draws a certain personality to it that's very earthy. Um, you know, that's uh, what's the what's the word uh, that Paul uses? It's very carnal. Um, and so even among self-professing believers there's a lot of that uh, going on. Um, I went from drama, went back to Alabama for a stint to do some, to do a school, the captain's course. And then I went to Korea to command. Hmm. Um, and man, it was in full force there. You know, the, the war wasn't on yet. And right. so, you know, what you would do with your own time was you just tied one on and found whatever kind of like trouble you could get into. And uh, that was a really, um, it, it was a culture that was dis discomforting. To a Christian who wanted to faithfully serve the Lord and look to my left, look to my right, like who? There's no one with me here. Like I was in a position here for a few months where I felt like I didn't have a brother or sister in Christ hmm. to walk next to me. We were in an isolated post up far away from most of the others. And thankfully, the Lord provided me with a wonderful Christian brother and family who came and took over one of the other companies, one of the other troops there. Um, and I remember telling him one night, like, I prayed for you to come here. Like you didn't know, and I didn't know who you were, but I was praying that God would send someone to walk next to. Um, and it just, just reinforces the importance of community uh, in the body of Christ. How we, we have to be there for each other. It's not an individual walk. Right. Now, what uh, describe for me what the journey looked like for you to go, because at this point you're in Korea, you're a single man. Right. How do we go from that moment to being married, being a chaplain, uh, what, what was the journey that took you down that road? Okay, so uh, my wife will appreciate that I don't tell the fake backstory to this because uh, she hates it, but um, I was there by myself on the DMZ. There's barbed wire and rice fields outside of my window, and uh, I was on the internet, but I could get civilian internet routed onto the post there, uh, which is kind of funny. And so I was on there and I'm bored. It's a Tuesday night and I wander on to uh, a site that no longer exists called thechristianmatchmaker.com. Uh, so, and it has these like recommendations. So if you don't put up a picture, no one will write you back. If you don't write other people, no one will write you back. So I spent 45 minutes filling out my profile. I didn't write a picture and I didn't write anybody else. And that was all I did with it that night. Well, I got an email from somebody and, uh, because this person, like myself, was super spiritual. Like uh, her first question was, you know, where's your picture? <laughs> and mine was, well, where's yours? You know? uh, and so we started to talk about things. And this, uh, this lady was in California. Uh, she was near Sacramento. And what's funny is her, she had done a search for people within, who made a match on things that are important to them within 50 miles. I was in Korea. Right. But there was a quirk in that system that all APOAP, so if you send a letter to someone who's overseas in the Pacific, it'll be titled APOAP if they're a service member. Uh, they all go through San Francisco for the mail distribution. And for some reason, uh, it wow. returned to San Francisco. For so, some reason. Yeah, for some reason, <laughs> yes. And uh, so even though she knew after reading my profile that I wasn't in San Francisco, um, you know, she initiated a conversation. Uh, so we talked back and forth, and then we did some phone calls, and uh, then I visited her. Um, and as I planned to visit her, I came to the conclusion that I don't think I could do this. Like, I've got some like baggage with me. She's got some baggage with her we've talked about. We're far away. I don't think, I don't think this can work. Hmm. So when I went to visit her, I, Andrew, I intended to dump her. That was, but to do it face to face because I'm a man. That's what <laughs> men do. If you're going to do it, you don't just not call back. 
I know you, you do it face to face, the right thing to do. And I met her at the train station and she was gorgeous. And I spent this time talking to her and she was amazing. And I, after two days, I said to her, you know what? I was gonna dump you, hmm. but you are so incredible. I will do whatever it takes to maintain this relationship. Um, and thankfully she didn't kick me to the curb like she probably should have at the time <laughs> uh, for being uh, telling her I was gonna dump her. Um, but uh, we kept it going uh, through uh, electronic and telephone uh, conversation. Um, I brought her over to Korea for a few days in between Christmas and uh, New Year's, proposed on the North Korean side of the DMZ. Not particularly romantic, but certainly as unique as far memorable. as we know. Memorable. Yes, it was memorable. <laughs> Um, and we got married uh, the next um, summer, uh, and our first kiss was uh, on the altar. Uh, that's pretty special, man. Yeah. And we're still together after all this time. So yeah, you guys were some of the probably some of the early trailblazers with the the online matchmaker. It, it sounded really desperate to meet someone online back then. It, it really did. There was a yeah. stigma. I yes. can remember in the early two thousands, it's like oh, that guy went on whatever <laughs> right. they were. There were several at the time. Yeah. But then, what about? Um, going from being a pilot to becoming a chaplain, what was it that prompted you and and led you down that path? Sure, so with that early realization, it was around 97 where I you know, had that, did that sermon and kind of had that confirmation then really started being deliberate about learning more and trying to grow more as uh, knowing what the scripture said, how it applied to life and uh, being part of the church. Um, so I continued to serve or volunteer wherever I was, either in the army capacity in an army chapel or at a civilian church. And, uh, this intent is intended to become a chaplain, but there was a, a lengthy requirement for how long you had to serve as an aviator. And when I got to the end of that time, when I was finishing Korea and going to get married, I knew, Andrew, that I was a little bit of a jerk. Hmm. Okay, maybe more than a little bit. But it just I felt it was necessary to do my job as a commander in that situation. And I recognized that's, that's not the personality you need to have mm. to serve in the local church. They don't need to listen to you. They can just punch you. You're not boss of them in the same way you are in the military. Right. So I asked for a different kind of assignment. I asked to go to ROTC. And just like church people, college students don't listen if you just tell them to do something. You have to convince them. You have to lead them. Um, and so we got married, went to Eastern Kentucky, did ROTC at Moorhead State University for three years, a great place with great people. Um, and that took the edge off right. uh, of how I did business day to day, how I dealt with people that I was trying to lead. Um, so went from there, got out of the military, moved to Louisville because I knew I wanted to go to seminary at Southern Seminary there, the Southern Baptist Seminary. And... Uh, it was there that I got my ministry experience, first as an intern for a year and a half, and then as an executive pastor and administrator for two and a half years after that at a fabulous church in Louisville called uh, Little Flock. So something you said there, and I, I saw another interview with you, and I really appreciate it. I want to dig into this this topic of setting goals. So you seem like you're someone who maybe does that naturally, or certainly you take the initiative, and it seems like that's been a pattern throughout your life. So what is it that would, that would make you think? Uh, in another interview that I saw with you, you talked about how um, you, you knew that, how did you put it? You, you were going to be, you had been a flight officer. Well, this was after you had become a chaplain, right. that you didn't want to serve in an aviation unit because of the dynamic that might exist between you, someone who had years of experience yes. in aviation as a pilot, um, and the people that you would be serving as a chaplain. But there were several instances of that. And even as, as you talked about cleaning up your language, how have you gone about setting priorities for growth and then setting goals and, and pursuing those? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing I would say is when you have a goal, the first step you have to take is, is to not say to yourself that I can't do that. So I'm reading a book now. That it, it's kind of a slog, so I'm not recommending it necessarily to get through it. It's called uh, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. It's written by William Law, an evangelical Anglican in the uh, 18th century. And he has this line in there, and I'm not quoting it perfectly because I don't have it with me, but it says, we look at the piety, the holiness of the saints of the past, and the reason why we're not as godly as they are isn't because we can't. It's because we don't really want to try. And that's what mm -hmm. we do with, with not just holiness, but with our goals in general. We look at something, we say, oh, I can't do that. And the first thing I would say is don't do that. 
Yes, you can. I, look, I get it. I can't be an NFL fullback, okay? But with most things we want to do with our lives, you actually do have the capability to get there. It doesn't mean you will, mm-hmm. but you have the capability. First, say, yes, I can do that. The second thing kind of goes back to when I was at West Point. I read this thing that Bill Parcells, a New York Giants coach, put up in the locker room. It, it says, blame nobody, expect nothing, do something. And I wrote that on an index card, put it above my desk, and I still have it. Hmm. It's not prominently posted anymore, um, but I still have it, just I kept it. And the personal Hmm. responsibility I have for anything I do, like it impacts like my goal setting and the steps I take. If this is my goal, I have to get there. No one else is gonna get me there, and I can't blame anyone else if I don't get there. Whether that's my relationships with other people, or my professional goals, or my personal goals, I am fully responsible for getting to those. And there's no time and no use in pointing a finger at someone else and expecting someone else to help me out with it. Um, And I think the last is, uh, I, I, I play chess. I lead a kid's chess club, which is mostly made up of my own children. Um, <laughs> and uh, when we do chess, we do, I have a tactics section and a strategy, tra- strategy section that I teach. But the reality with chess is that on this limited board, just like our life has limits that are placed around it, right. all chess is tactics. All chess is tactics. That if you're not accomplishing the tactics toward that strategy that you have, you're not gonna achieve the strategy. Hmm. And so you set the goal and you say, how do I get there? Okay, I wanna be an army chaplain. That means I have to acquire a degree of 90 hours or more, master degree of 90 hours or by an accredited seminary. I have to get this kind of experience uh, with these kinds of tasks that have to be accomplished within it. I have to develop an understanding of ministry that would be relevant for the military community. How do I get there? Okay, mm-hmm. here, here's how we get there. What's step one? What's the first tactic for that strategy? I've got to do that first. All right, got it. Right. What's the next one? Yeah. And so there, there is some organization that goes in there of writing things down. Yes. Uh, just the other day, I started writing out a discipleship plan for my kids because they've been kind of young enough, except for my eldest, that I've been able to just, kind of like a by osmosis, they've been able to come along. Right. But they're starting to ask questions now that I realize I probably should have armed you right. to answer this question. Right. You're 15 years old. You're you're intellectually developed enough to know that answer, time to be deliberate about answering them. And so right. writing down what the plan's gonna be, putting yes. it on the calendar when we're gonna do it. These, this thing happens in the mornings before breakfast. These happen at the dinner before bed. This is when dad does one-on-one with each kid. That, that's what I have to do. So being, being disciplined about it, planning it out, that's pretty critical to accomplishing any goal. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I, I love where you started, which is really just thoughtfulness and taking ownership. So if you think about where is it or what is it that, that you want to see change in your life or where do you want to be um, X number of months or years from now, and then reverse engineering that there's a pathway that's going to move you from where you are today to that point, and then figuring out the next steps. Uh, one last little thought on that. Do you, do you find you're someone who is just naturally self-motivated or have you been able to find other people or ways of keeping yourself motivated and moving towards those goals? I think at this stage of my life, I'm generally self-motivated. I can't point to my background and say, you know, here's my background of trauma. That's why I'm self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, West Point is a kind of place that pushes you to be a self-starter and self-disciplined. Right. You know, mostly by the beatings will continue until morale improves method. But, it, you know, you're conditioned to kind of get after it. Right. Um, recently, I started listening to a podcast. It's not a Christian podcast called the, the Jocko podcast. I've heard um, of it. Yeah, he's a former Navy SEAL. And it, he's very much like a leadership, um, mm-hmm. fitness kind of uh, self-disciplined kind of guy. Right. And uh, I started listening to it on a recommendation of someone else, and I realized, wow, I've really allowed like my fitness to drop off. Mm. And so just it motiv- it, every once in a while, someone we need someone else just to say kind of the right thing the right way. Right. God puts them in your, our life somehow, and that's an opportunity to take advantage of. You know what? They're right. Mm-hmm. I may not have to go full hog, max jujitsu, you know, super deadlift guy, but I can take steps with my diet, with mm-hmm. my fitness routine. 
uh, and kind of build that around my my prayer discipline, kind of back, add some time in right. the morning that, that goes around it, and right. it works, and it gets me toward my goal. Well, I think this is... Uh I hope this is going to be helpful for people. Some of us are just naturally wired towards setting goals and, and trying to pursue them. But the principles of goal setting work for anybody. Absolutely. And so to, to figure out, and, and they work across different arenas of life. So whether it's your, your physical life or your career, professional development, uh, whether it is, I've got some goals this year for my marriage. That there's some things that I realize I, I need to be purposeful about investing in my marriage and Absolutely. how can I do that? And certainly with your spiritual life, um, including things like prayer, I think sometimes we can buy into this this falsehood that, well, some people are just naturally motivated or um, they're more capable than I am. And the reason why these things aren't happening for me is I'm just not gifted or there's right. something wrong mm. with me. And, and in reality, all of us can be so much more than we are yes. if we take the time to think through what are what are our values, how would we like to see our life improve, how would we like to be better people, right. and then mm -hmm. set those goals. Um, well, we'll probably touch on some of that. We, we might possibly touch on that as we move forward, but I am fascinated to kind of switch gears a little bit, even in this conversation, how you started out with a background in Roman Catholicism. Right. There was some Baptist in there. Sure. You, uh, you've been involved in different churches uh, over the years, and then your your seminary was with a, a Baptist seminary, right. uh, and yet you're an Anglican, or you're endorsed by the Anglican Church as a chaplain. Right. So how did that happen? How did you come to serve with the Anglican Church? And I am not from a high church background. So what can folks like me learn from our high church brethren? Okay. Um, so I, I'd probably have to say that unlike, there are a lot of people who've been moving in the Anglican way recently. It's a growing uh, denomination, growing way of doing church together. Um, and it's different from what I, what you might be used to in like a Baptist or non-denominational context. And a lot of times we see something different and we immediately just say, oh, that's that's weird, and sometimes because of our background, we may have heard, well, that's wrong because there's things in it that we don't do. Um, but because I had that mix of Roman Catholicism and, and Baptist, it wasn't strange to me, so it probably made it easier for me to you know, seriously consider it first. Um, so because of that mixed background, I was more comfortable with like liturgy, with formal uh, ritual, um, with particular ways of expression of the faith uh, in action and in words and in movements. Um, and there, sometimes I was even uncomfortable being a Baptist. Uh, a phrase I use tongue in cheek is that I felt like to be Baptist was to feel like we could belly up to the bar with God. Of course, Baptists don't drink, so that's supposed to be a funny <laughs> part of it. Uh, but that, you know, it's it's a very, hey, just, you know, come as you are and uh, very uh, comfortable. A little too a little, casual. Right, a little too casual. It's just how it felt to me. It's not, it's mm. not a condemnation, but right. it's just a culture there. Um, and that with my Roman Catholic background, with the high ritual, there's a contrast there that I saw. And I kind of always felt, man, I wish we had, like, some stained glass and some nice smelling mm. stuff when we come in here. And that we were, like, more reverent in this corporate worship element. Um, but I liked what Southern Baptist stood for on paper. I liked their love for the word, for people, for mission, uh, for discipleship. So I was comfortable being labeled that way. Um, but as I continued to grow my faith, I continued to like read church history, continue to read theology, and not just theology I already agree with, uh, but theology I didn't already agree with. Right. It started to challenge my, my preconceptions, because even though I had a Roman Catholic background childhood, I never really understood much about it, I understood much more about the Baptist way of doing things. And so when I would read things that conflicted with that, I'd say to myself, what, why do I believe what I believe about baptism or about the Lord's Supper or about how the church is structured or how we choose what we choose to do in worship? And like, I had to think about like, where did I get these ideas from? and realize that here I'm reading something from the second century. It sounds like they're doing something very different from what we do now. Is it okay that we do something very different now? Is it value neutral 
right. how we do these things? Or might there be a better way of doing things? Might God have spoken <laughs> to the church in history and it, in a way we could learn from? And there I was, but I wasn't considering Anglicanism because I didn't really know anything about it. Um, so I was uh, actually attending a my Baptist friends would disappoint, be disappointed, but I was attending Presbyterian church with my wife at the time, and we were going to a Bible study. And a guy there handed me this Book of Common Prayer of 1549 uh, and 1552. There were two of them written by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer uh, in a brief period where the church in England was Protestant before Mary came back and made it Catholic again, and then after Mary became Protestant permanently with Elizabeth. And I was reading this book. And it was amazing. Hmm. It was I was blown away by like the theological richness of it and the uh, the connection uh, to history and the creeds and the pattern that they had set. And the guy wasn't advertising for Anglicanism. He was just like, "Hey, I've been checking this out. Uh, are you interested in it?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll read it." And I gave it back to him. I was done. I said, "I have to learn more about this." Well, the same time I was there, I was meeting some Anglican chaplains. Uh, four of them were with me there in South Carolina. I started asking them questions. I watched how they. They would lead worship, watch how they conducted themselves. These guys, hmm. they're smart. They're uh, passionate about their faith. Um, they're connected to the history of the church in a way that I know I'm not right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that I am because the seminary set me up with church history, with reading or- original sources and appreciating the connection between like Athanasius or Origen or Irenaeus and myself and seeing the shared beliefs there. So I, I had that, the core doctrines right. was connected with, but practices I wasn't connected with. Mm. And so I started talking to them. They gave me some books to read. I started reading them. And then I said, you know what? This is the way I need to go. Uh, this is the right direction for me to go. And so I'm not an Anglican by preference. I'm an Anglican by conviction. Um, that the Anglican way of doing church, community, uh, corporate faith uh, is the way that I believe I need to be doing it. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm evangelical about Anglicanism. I'm right. evangelical about Christ first. Good. But once we get past that point, <laughs> right. when people are looking for a way to do their life in Christ, yeah. I'm like, hey, let me tell you about the Anglican way. Well, you know, many of our listeners probably don't even know what the Anglican church is. So I would say this would be my outsider's uh, explanation of the Anglican church, that, that when England uh, broke away from the Catholic church during the Protestant Reformation, um, the church that became there in, in England became the Church of England, which is where the, the, the term Anglican comes. It's, it's the Church of England, and now we have that particular faith tradition here in the United States and around the world, uh, which is the Anglican Church. Uh, so in, in some ways, it's help me out because you would know, it's much closer to Catholicism in probably the way it feels and uh, the expressions yes. of of church service and order, maybe even the structure, mm-hmm. church structure, hierarchy. Right. Um, it's probably much closer to Catholicism than, say, a, 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 an Assemblies of God church. Um, so in a sense, it is Protestant, but maybe the look and the feel and a lot of the practices might strike Protestants as being much closer to Catholicism. Than yes, what that's what you would be. think. Right. Uh, if you walked in, you saw it, and you weren't familiar with the details of right. like Roman Catholic practice, ritual, and theology, you would probably think, oh, this is like a this is pretty much a Catholic church. And it's also what we mean by the term high church. That high church is one that is a more formal, um, ha- uses the liturgy. Um, has a more formal structure in terms of leadership and organization. Uh, and for many of us, and probably many of us in, in America who are Christians, uh, and probably many of those listening, that's a foreign way of, of living out faith and, right. and practicing worship. So if you were to say there, there were one or two things, without becoming Anglican necessarily, but mm-hmm. what are some things that those of us who don't come from that particular tradition might be missing that you think the Anglican Church is doing a great job of. Sure. Um, So there's probably three things about Anglicanism that I think really set it apart. Um, One is liturgy, formal liturgy. Um, If probably people's, if uh, your audience, if they saw George H.W. Bush's funeral, 
they saw an Anglican-style liturgy. While, without going into detail, the Episcopal Church in the U.S. It does business differently and believes things differently than the Anglicans do in the U.S., uh, the history is very similar to where they get their ritual from. There's every worship service, you're going to read a significant passage, significant-sized passage from the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament and the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Every single time, there's a, a there's a lot of scripture in a formal liturgy service that, uh, in some you know more uh, low churches, you, Anglicans use low church and high church differently. But uh, most people, we say high church or low church, like a Baptist uh, service, what you know, might just use one verse that right. day that they're going to preach about. And sometimes it might not even be about that verse, even though they use it. So you're always going to have a lot of scripture. You're going to have historic prayers in there that have been said from the earliest days of the church. So uh, there's a prayer, a, a hymn called the Fos Hilaron. It means uh, a gladsome light mm -hmm. uh, that, that was written in around 150 AD that the church has been using. When we do evening prayer, I do it with my kids. Uh, there's oh, there's a Tadeum Ladamus, and that's a we use that in morning prayer where uh, it's just a praise of God, praise of the Triune God that was in the, mm. written in the 300s. And so mm. we have these historic prayers and hymns that we repeat that connects us across history to the church in all times and all places. In fact, every week mm -hmm. in all languages across the world, you know, mm -hmm. people are saying these same prayers, these same historic hymns of the church. And that's really exciting to be connected to the global church in that way. Mm. Um, another thing liturgy does is I have to submit myself to it. And so submission is a second thing that uh, is uh, is, is, is central to Anglicanism is I submit myself to the prayer book. This is what the lectionary says we're going to read today. If you follow the lectionary, you're going to read the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, if you just follow it through the year, sometimes it's broken into two or three year uh, readings, but I use one that goes through one year. So you're going to read the whole Bible. Let's just go ahead and read it. That's what I'm going to read for today. I'm going to encounter passages I might not encounter if I'm reading on my own. Mm -hmm. Like how many churches are preaching from Nahum this week? You know, or from, you know, Jeremiah, you know, 32, like some very like imprecatory kind of stuff where God is speaking judgment on his people for chapters in a row. Like not many, mm -hmm. but I'm forced to encounter all the elements of how God has revealed himself in scripture in the lectionary, mm -hmm. which is a part of the formal liturgy. And so I have to submit myself to that in the reading and the preaching is going to be oriented on one of those uh, topics. Uh, also, particularly as a, as a clergyman, as a cleric, as a priest, presbyter, or if you're a deacon, I have to submit myself to the bishop. So the Anglicanism is uh, it's a broad spectrum, but within boundaries. So there are boundaries you have to stay within. Well, even within those boundaries, my bishop may say, hey, this is how we're going to dress when we lead a service. Now, I might think, if left to myself, I would dress a little bit differently. But you know what? He's the bishop. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to dress the way he says he would prefer us to dress, even if he's not using his authority to say, you will do this. If he says, I prefer we do it this way, I'm going to submit. It's healthy for us to submit to others mm -hmm. uh, and to submit to the liturgy. And so that submission, I think, is a second element of Anglicanism uh, that's healthy. And the third is the centrality of communion. Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things that when the Church of England began, Archbishop Cranmer uh, was leading it is the church was in the habit of only doing communion once a year, twice a year, three times a year. Um, and he advocated for doing that much more often, wanted it to become weekly. Mm -hmm. They didn't achieve that early on. Mm -hmm. It actually took centuries to get there. But mm -hmm. we've gotten there. We understand we gather together. Worshiping God in holy communion is a right that he has given us to do. Uh, he said specific things we should repeat to remind us of what he has done. There's something about the incarnation which is reflected in this, in which Christ meets us in communion, and that's incredibly valuable. So that understanding of like there's a sacramental theology there, not of I get something from God because I do, but that God meets us here. There's a blending of the supernatural and the natural that isn't shared in the same way in anything else we do in prayer or in community or in evangelism mm -hmm. um, that does meet us in communion. So there's a there's an incredible blessing there that we missed out on because 
when the Reformation happens, and some groups emphasize, well, that's not what Rome says. Rome says something a little different. We don't want anything like that. So it's actually not important. It's just a, it's a memorial. Right. It's not important. Hmm. Um, but we would say, no, the church has always held as important. We understand the theological difficulties with how the Roman Catholic Church was presenting it during the Reformation. Um, but this is important. We need to share in this sacred meal when we gather together. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's a couple directions I'd like to go just coming out, out of your description there of, of uh, the Anglican Church and how it looks, how, how it works. Um, I know that you are, um, well, let me go there a second. Let, let me start for, for me to meet someone who is an Anglican uh, or worships with, with that particular stream of devotion within Christianity, who's also an evangelical, right. who wants to share his faith, who wants to make disciples, who doesn't believe that that disciple-making and ministry is relegated to only the professionals, but that all of the followers of Jesus have been brought into the family of faith and also into the family business, that there is work and there is ministry that the Lord has for every single believer. Yes. Those, yes. Are, those are two things that you would be an Anglican who, who has a very um, structured and traditional view right. of Christian faith and Christian practice, and yet also has this vision for reaching new people with the faith and helping them come to know Jesus and walk with him. So talk to me a little bit more about how you've seen success being a professional clergy now, being a chaplain, and yet not just wanting people to come to your services or to listen to what you have to say, but to actually empower everyday believers to live out their faith and share their faith. How's that looked? Sure. Um, so there, you know, there. Paul says in Ephesians that uh, the, these gifts, these offices, are given to the church so that we can train up others to go out and do it themselves, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not for me to do all the ministry. And that's where like church history and, and how the clergy has failed the church, honestly. Church, right. But knowing church history and seeing, well, who were the clergy and what were they responsible for? Well, it's very similar to the apostolic ministry in that they led communion, they did led the communion service and they did the preaching, but they equipped the saints for ministry. And so I, as a cleric, I will do, I do personal mentoring. I mentor individuals um, in small groups. I did that. I did a lot of that at West Point. That was a great job for me, the chaplain up there, um, before I came back here. But I continue to do that now. And why am I doing that? So that they will go and do the same. Um, and I encourage people, like, we study, when we take our personal studies, that's not just for me. Like, I'm not getting more of Jesus for myself. I mean, of course, I want to be blessed by what God does. I'm thankful for my relationship with Christ and the way it builds me up and shapes me. But he hasn't given us himself to be a part of him just so I can feel better, mm. just so I can like be a better person. It's so I can go and represent him, carry him, carry the message of him to the world, not as an Anglican clergyman, not as a minister, but as a follower of Christ. And so there's no different the saints are we're all saints right you know, we're all we all have that same holy spirit mm -hmm. that spirit of christ that spirit of god within us and we need to carry that out and so it starts with me personally mentoring others and also from my leadership platform of whether from the pulpit or uh doing small groups um in leading others to go out and seek to disciple themselves and that doesn't mean that they become clergy by discipling. We're just obeying the command of Jesus to the church, the corporate church, to go, therefore. Why do we go? Because all authority has been given unto him. He's telling us in his authority that we are to go do this in his power as members of the kingdom to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them what Christ has given us. And so that's the church's corporate responsibility, and we all have to have a part in that. It doesn't mean everyone does it the same. But it does mean we're all looking for a way to contribute to that goal of carrying the gospel and growing the kingdom uh, of the church. Yeah, I love that. I, I think part of what you said there, you know, Jesus does not call us to a life of faith to make our lives better. 
Right. I mean, he calls yes. us to a life of faith to make us like himself. Amen. And so <clears throat> Jesus lived, he lived this life of devotion to the Father. And so he went through the world, yes. walking with the Father, serving him, listening to him, drawing near. I'm reading in the Gospel of Luke right now in my daily devotions. And Luke especially highlights how Jesus would often withdraw to pray, withdraw to an isolated place to pray. And so part of his life of faith was this, this first-person devotion to the Father and, and to wanting to go through life, walking a life of faith. Uh, part of his devotion was to be a messenger, to represent, to proclaim the kingdom of God, right. and to call people to repent and to enter it. And so that is... The, the universal call for all believers, uh, for all Christians, for all followers of Christ, is to become like Jesus. And so part of that is going to be internal, where he's reshaping us, changing our character. But absolutely part of it is external, that we're needing to learn how to represent him and share him. And it's one thing I really appreciate about you, Joey, reading your book, Faith is Not Blind, which I would definitely recommend and we'll talk about a little bit more here at the end of the of the conversation but you have such um, a value in giving people practical things so once you know that this is the life that that the Lord has called you to as a Christian well okay what are some practical ways that you can begin to develop yourself and one of those practical things is to just become more aware and informed about church history, uh, which is a passion I think we both share. Uh, one of the reasons why I think we're so, we can be so lost in modern day American Christianity is that we have no anchor. We have no reference to 2,000 years of, of church history that has come before us. And we can just have this naive assumption that the way the church looks that I'm familiar with in 21st century American culture, and, and even within my particular experiences of yes. American Christianity, yes. that, that that's normal, that that's the way the church, you know, quote, should look, or maybe has always looked. And then you start to study church history, and you realize, no, there's, there's a whole journey that God's people have been on, that's right. you know, since the resurrection and the ascension, mm -hmm. It's looked different throughout mm -hmm. the centuries, and yet there are common threads. Yes. And I think it just gives you perspective. I think it gives you uh, freedom because you begin to realize that it has looked different, <laughs> and God seems to be okay with that right. throughout the centuries. Um, and it's going to look different even between different faith traditions mm -hmm. in the present, and right. that's okay. Yes. Um, we need to know what those, those core truths are. Mm -hmm. um, but what are some recommendations that you would say for someone who's at square one? They, right. they know almost nothing about church history. Are there some resources or some ways that people can go about just becoming more informed? Absolutely. Um, so, of course, if you don't know anything about church history, it's good to get some kind of overview book. But, but even there, you have to be careful. So I picked up a book recently, a church history book. It was called Introduction to Church History. And uh, it was a smaller book, so I could blow through it pretty quickly. Probably a third of the book was kind of like a, uh, a polemic against the cultural problems of the day in the 1960s or 70s when the guy was writing the book. Um, it had a very particular agenda he was pushing through this history. And so it's good to read anything on churches. You're going to get nuggets of truth in there and see some things you didn't know before. Um, I know Justo Gonzalez's uh, church history, can one or two volumes, is, is a good overview. Um, Darmy McCullough's uh, 3,000 Years of Church History uh, is a good one. But once you've gotten a church history overview, if you read a, read a book on church history, it's time to start reading original sources because what we get in those overview books is here's what Luther said and meant and was trying to do. Well, sometimes when we go and we read what Luther actually says and what the Pope says in response to him, we find it's different than what this guy here was saying. Right. Um, and so that's the danger with any book that's telling you what someone else did. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I love history, and I recommend you start with overviews. But once you've done that, pick something in history or a person in history you want to learn more about and read what they wrote. Read what they actually said during that time. Um, read what was the important issues of the day and how they dealt with them. And it helps us to see how doctrine develops over time. Mm-hmm. And so it, one thing it does, Andrew, is it makes me more sympathetic, empathetic, and passionate towards those who believe differently than I do. Right. Because I can understand how they got to where they are. It's why I don't bash my, you know, non-denominational or, or Baptist brethren. Uh, at the dinner table the other day, my kids uh, and I, I asked them a question. I said, kids, tell me, what's different about how we do things as Anglicans than how we did them as Baptists without saying what you think is better? And we went through this where I'd go around the table and the kids would give some feedback. I said, I want you to think about for a week, what are good reasons to do it either way? Hmm. What are the good things about doing it this way? What are the good things about doing it that way? Um, And it's really hard for us to do that. We get so tied into, like you said, my experience, my culture, what I know, that we assume that's that's what right looks like. And we can not only assume that's what right looks like, we get to the point where those who believe otherwise are actually ignorant or deluded or bad right? because they believe otherwise. Um, and seeing how God has worked in the church throughout history, seeing the diversity of the way he has led his people um, takes us to a place where we're more understanding of ourselves and what we believe. It can strengthen what you believe already. It can take you in a different direction um, like it has you know, for me, for moving from being Baptist to Anglican. Um, but what I think it won't do is it won't take you away from the central core of the faith because starting at the earliest writings of the church all the way up to the present, you can see that common thread of the gospel mm-hmm. coming through, um, which will encourage you in your walk. I became passionate about this beginning with some atheists that I knew in the army when I was a chaplain, and I'd talk to them, and they would tell me their story about how they grew up in this or that church and how this or that like was such a turnoff to them and how they walked away never to return. And I would say to them, why do you think everyone believes it? Why do you think that's what Christianity is? You know, they'd say something that's offensive to me is they think it's a Christian doctrine. I'd say, Why do you think that's what it is? And their only answer is that that's what they experienced. Hmm. Then when I got to West Point, there's a healthy cadet Christian subculture there. And um, I saw how there was a particular brand of evangelicalism that they were kind of all tied into. And as cadets would walk away from that, hmm. and they would walk away because they would see that there are some essentially caricatures of Christianity that were built into that model right? Um, that they didn't like, and they would go after some other caricature <laughs> right. of Christianity that, that is, is no more helpful to their faith walk. I would say that no one is asking the questions, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Where did that come from? You know, Who told me that? And where was it before them? And then finally, is that good enough of a reason to believe that, or do I need to work on this some more? Yeah. Um, and so church history helps us with those questions. I think uh, a couple of resources that I've, I've found personally very helpful in this area of just getting a, an overview of church history. One is a book called Church History in Plain Language by uh, a man named Bruce Shelley. I read that early in my journey of faith and it really opened my eyes. I think I walked away, the one thing that I can remember for sure is I walked away with a real appreciation for mm. the Catholic Church. Mm that I really didn't have prior to that. I, I would say I almost had this vague idea that the Catholic Church was somehow a negative force in the world, mm-hmm. which I think I just picked up um, as I went through life uh, around mostly Protestants. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a great resource if folks want to just get an introduction and they are readers. Um, a, another resource if people prefer to listen, there's a set of audio lectures by a man named Luke Timothy Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. I don't think so. But it's available on Audible for those who have an Audible account. And it's called From Disciples to the Dawn of the Reformation. So that's particularly about uh, church history from the Book of Acts up through uh, the 16th century. Um, So he doesn't try to tackle the Reformation or what's happened since then. But it'll give you a great... For most of our listeners, that's probably what they need to right. uh, to get familiar with. And you can listen to it on your commute. It's it's a set of lectures. All of them are about 30 minutes in length. So um, that would be a great investment if uh, folks want to 
to listen to that. And I would also recommend your book, Faith is Not Blind. You've got a lot of great practical resources. I read that recently. Um, it's available on Amazon. And I think folks would, um, would really get some practical steps that they could immediately begin to put into practice um, to begin moving forward. And, and I would say deepening their own understanding of Christianity, of the Bible. You, you just give some great exercises and steps that people can take uh, to do that. Um, last question as we, as we move towards wrapping up here. One thing that I took away from that book, your book, Faith is Not Blind, you talk about the need for us to grow in both depth, what do I believe, and breadth, what do others believe, not just Christians, but what are some of the belief systems that are out there in the world? Right. If we're going to be effective ambassadors, messengers, then it's it's really those two things. We need to know our message yes. that we've come to believe and build our lives on, but you really need to know what your audience or your hearers are also, where they're coming from in terms of their belief systems. So how important is that? And what are some ways that people can begin to try to develop both depth and breadth? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's important because of the trap we've mentioned before, the tendency to fall into a, this is what's right, and people who think other than this are just flat out wrong without understanding what they actually believe in the first place um, and how they got there. And it's just, it's e so easy, particularly in an age where Facebook feeds you the stuff that it thinks already agrees with what you, what you have communicated. Lots of confirmation yes, bias. Yes, lots of confirmation <laughs> bias going on there. Um, and so we do, that's not who we want to be because we're going to dismiss ideas and we're going to dismiss people because we don't understand their ideas or how they got there or even how we got to where we are. Um, and so, but this will not happen on its own, Andrew. We cannot just assume, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, under, I'll be open and I'll understand mm. what people believe. No, you won't actually. Mm. You have to make it a goal and then come up with a plan for how you're going to attack that goal. And so when I make my reading plan for the year, uh, Tim Challies, who's a Baptist guy, he has something called the Challies Challenge that he puts out every year. And it's a way to structure your reading list for the year. There's a 12-book model. There's, a, I think, a 24 uh 52 and 104 or something like that, uh, that you can, and so there'll be like, you know, a book about church history would be in mm. all four of them. Mm. Um, a book written for the opposite gender, um, a book about the arts, um, a fiction book in popular culture, um, a book that you know you will disagree with the author. And so that helped me when I first started to broaden what I was reading to identify some areas I might not pick up on my own. Mm. Um, so whether it's reading about African-American church history in the United States, uh, whether it's about reading uh, some like feminist theology, uh, I've picked up, uh, this is in a tongue in cheek, I read One Heretic a Quarter, um, modern ones usually. <laughs> um, where I pick a book, I know, I know I have serious disagreements with this person over right. what's important in the world, what's important in the faith. But I'm going to go ahead and read it anyway because it can expose to me something that I've always believed that I've never questioned right? and don't know where I got it from. Um, and so that's how you do breadth. Uh, depth is also using like that a similar kind of list, but deliberately choosing areas that I know I need to grow in my understanding of. I want to grow in my understanding of uh, the incarnation. I want to grow in my understanding of uh, you know theology of the church, um, or of or I want to understand why uh, other people think baptism is different. And so some cool books out there like the Four Views or Five Views books. Those are always really helpful to get mm -hmm. a, an overview of different perspectives than my own that also will deepen my understanding of the position I currently hold. Um, and so both of those are important because we want to become rooted in what we know to be true, but we also want to be aware of what uh, may not be true and be able to identify what is not true. And that puts us in a place where we can be the best disciplers that we can be. Yeah, I think if we were only called to hold fast the faith mm -hmm. until Christ returns, mm -hmm. um, then we could just go 
deep. Right. What do I believe? How, how can I stay true to it? But we're also told to contend earnestly for the faith, right. which means you need to know what are the other messages that, that are out there that right. people are being drawn into mm -hmm. and why do we believe differently and how does Christianity answer or interact with those other belief systems? Absolutely. Um, which I think is it's a great practice. So many times we can be afraid, I think. Some of it's driven by just apathy. We just don't want to take the time to read and to learn because what we're really talking about is, is akin to exercise, that you are stretching yourself, whether it's going deeper in what you already believe so that you understand it better and you're able to articulate it better, or you're stretching yourself by considering other ways of thinking, other belief systems that are outside of what you believe. Both are going to require effort and, and a stretching on our part, but they're essential because we are called to hold fast and we are called to contend earnestly for the faith. You're not going to truly be able to do either faithfully right. if you aren't willing to continue to grow and to stretch yourself. Well, this has been great. There's actually a few other things that I wanted to talk with you about, so maybe we'll have to do another one of these uh, conversations in the future. But if people wanted to connect with you, uh, what would be the best way for folks to to do that? Okay, so I should have a better answer for that. Um, but uh, on Instagram, I'm Rev Joey O'Dell. Uh, on Facebook, I'm Joey O'Dell, and there's a picture of me with my daughters. I, I've most of my stuff is public, so you can flip through my profile, and you'll know that it's me because I'm the guy who has a collar in some pictures, a uniform in others, or have the, you know a pile of kids on him in in the third. Um, and those are probably the two best ways. I do have a website, joeyodell.com, that I blog occasionally at. Uh, that you can find a link directly to the book if you want to pick one up there. Um, and those are probably uh, the best ways. Yeah, and we'll try to provide some links in the show notes as well. But I would, I would absolutely encourage getting connected with Joey. I've enjoyed following, following you on Facebook. And uh, you've, you've always got some great things to consider and to interact over. So if folks uh, want to stay connected, then that might be a great way to do that. Also, Instagram and the blog. And your book, Faith is Not Blind, is available on Amazon. Um, it's a short book. It's definitely one that you can read uh, fairly quickly, but I think it's packed with, with great wisdom and some helpful things. So thanks for joining us today, and we'll do it again sometime soon. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. One of the best ways you can partner with us to grow our community is to share this podcast with your friends. Whether it's word of mouth or sharing our content on social media, we need your help to spread the message. Thanks for being part of our family. Together, we're bringing discipleship into the digital age.